Hello, and welcome to Tax Break. My name is Rob Kovacev, and I am a member in the tax group at Miller & Chevalier. And today we have a very special guest, uh, my colleague and very distinguished practitioner, Larry Gibbs. And you know, those of you who don't know who Larry is, and probably you all do, uh, Larry Gibbs is a uh, former commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. He attended Yale as an undergraduate and the University of Texas Law School in Austin and began practice of tax law in 1963 in Corpus Christi, Texas. He then went to DC in 1972 to become deputy chief counsel, acting chief counsel, and IRS assistant commissioner technical for four years under Treasury Secretary George Shultz during President Nixon's administration. He returned to practice of tax law in Dallas, Texas in 1976, and then returned to the IRS upon the recommendation of uh, Treasury Secretary Jim Baker during the Reagan administration, uh, when uh, Larry was appointed IRS commissioner shortly before the 1986 Tax Reform Act was enacted. Larry returned to private practice in Washington, D.C. in 1989 and joined us at Miller Chevalier in 1994 to practice tax, where he is currently a senior counsel. So welcome, Larry, and thank you for joining us. So the topic of today's discussion is going to be the strategic operating plan, which was released by the Internal Revenue Service uh, on April 6th of this year. As you know, recently in the uh, in Inflation Reduction Act, the IRS received uh, roughly $80 billion in additional funding. And one of the questions with that funding came through was, how are they going to spend that money? And in response to that, the IRS came up with a very detailed plan, it's 149 pages long, that discusses five objectives for how they are actually going to spend that money that they received. The main areas where this will be uh, spent is in customer service, technology, enforcement, and personnel. As you probably also know, this has been a controversial uh, a piece of legislation. Uh, one of the issues in the debt ceiling uh, dispute that recently happened in Washington was that uh, the IRS funding was too much and that it would cause too much enforcement, especially among small businesses and uh, individuals making under $400,000 a year. Therefore, as part of the compromise that led to the, the debt ceiling uh, being raised, the IRS additional funding was reduced by about $20 billion. We're not sure exactly where that's going to come out of, and there are some details of that, which uh, it seems to be more of a handshake deal. It's not clear it's actually going to happen quite the way uh, that it's been described. Nonetheless, there's no question that the IRS has a lot of additional money and a plan to spend it. And there's no one better to talk about how the IRS is going to spend it and how they should plan to spend it than uh, Commissioner Larry Gibbs. And with that, I'll turn it over to Larry. And my first question is, you've read the strategic operating plan in detail. What do you consider the most important aspects of the plan? Rob, um, one of the advantages to living as long as I have is that I have been practicing tax for about 50 years. And for about 40 of those years, I've watched the Internal Revenue Service, both as an employee uh, beginning in the 1970s and also as a tax practitioner. 
most recently and today with Miller and Chevalier. With that perspective, um, I would suggest to you that, at least from my standpoint, the most remarkable and important aspect of the plan is the fact that it actually got passed. Well, let me explain what I mean. When I became commissioner uh, in 1986, we had former commissioners going all the way back uh, to Mort Kaplan. And the uh, administration of President Kennedy. From that time forward, certainly through my time and on forward until recently with Commissioner Chuck Reddick, now former Commissioner Chuck Reddick, there was a constant uh, drumbeat among the former commissioners to try to help the present commissioner, whoever he or she was, to get more funding. The reason is that when I joined the IRS in 1972, it was recognized by Congress that if you had a difficult job and you wanted to get it done, you gave it to the Internal Revenue Service because they could get it done. As a result, over the years, more and more and more has been asked of the Internal Revenue Service. The problem is that the funding has not kept up with the increase in workload. We saw that dramatically after the Lois Lerner episode, where the Republicans basically decided that the IRS had discriminated against the Republican Party in terms of the issues that were involved in the political fundraising. That despite a Treasury Inspector General's report indicating that there had not been no discrimination, that IRS had treated both parties the same way and very poorly. But as a result, all you have to do is go take a look at the numbers, at the statistics. Really from about 2010 on, and some believe even before 2010, what you saw was an annual decrease in the amount of appropriations that Congress passed and used to fund the Internal Revenue Service. And it's a straight line, and it goes down. And there, there were no exceptions. Now, at the same time that was happening, the Congress largely was increasing the workload of the Internal Revenue Service. And that happened every single year with major legislation that was being passed. I'll give you just an example. And this is one example I could choose from many similar examples. When FATCA was passed, that introduced a whole new level of taxation for United States citizens living outside the United States. It created real havoc with other countries and it made it difficult for many uh, non-resident citizens to actually get foreign cooperation from the governments and also from the private sectors in these countries because the IRS was demanding information to be provided by 
financial capabilities in foreign countries that we're not used to providing any uh, tax agency with this kind of information. As a result, it took forever to get that worked out. And it meant a great deal more work for the Internal Revenue Service. Now, that's just one example. Uh, legislation was passed almost every year. The number of returns over a 13-year period were uh, quite a bit, uh, quite a bit of growth in those returns. So, make a long story short, what you've got is a situation where the workload of the Internal Revenue Service is increasing over a significant, substantial period, and every year the funding to perform that work is going down. Now, to realize the severity of this, let me put it in another context. Today, our national debt, the amount of our national debt, is in excess of our gross domestic product. 30, we're approaching $32 trillion in national debt. And our gross domestic product is less than that. Spending has gone out of sight. It's uncontrolled. The revenue that is generated by our income tax and by the Internal Revenue Service results in 95% of the gross receipts that this country receives every single year. Two of the last three commissioners have expressed concern that our system is under tremendous pressure and if the funding continues to decline while the workload goes up, the concern has been expressed that ultimately there will be a system failure. I submit to you that given our fiscal situation with our debt in excess of GDP, we cannot afford a fiscal failure in this country. As a result, when former Commissioner Chuck Reddick was able to work not only with Democrats but also with Republicans to pass the Inflation Reduction Act through Congress and signed by our president. It meant a, a, a funding increase of $80 billion over 10 years, not all at once, but over 10 years. That was something that we had tried for 30 years to get done in the country. And as a result, that's the basis on which I say the most amazing thing about the plan was that it ever got passed at all. The former commissioners had tried for 30 years unsuccessfully to get that done. Again, uh, I, I want to go back to some of the things. I will not repeat them again. But I'll simply say it's not a question of adequate. I don't know whether it's going to be adequate. Uh, I think that, honestly, I understand why the politicians are asking for a plan of how things are going to be spent. Something that I have worried about, and I think others have worried about, is what is going to happen in the future with respect to funding at the Internal Revenue Service? All right, with the debt limit increase, we now know that Congress is willing to reduce the amount of the 80 billion. Will there be further reductions? We don't know, but in any event, Regardless of what happens to that legislation, 
what's going to happen with annual appropriations to the Internal Revenue Service? Are they going to be increased? Are they going to be decreased? Will they remain the same? We don't know. These are key questions that we're going to be asking. And they're important questions in light of the stakes that are involved from a fiscal standpoint, from a political standpoint, from the standpoint of our quality of life in this country, from the standpoint of the foreign concerns we have at the present time. What is the position of the Internal Revenue Service going to be uh, in the world uh, tomorrow and the next day? Uh, as a result, I don't know how to measure adequacy. <laughs> I don't know whether if we could get the $20 billion restored, would that be adequate? Well, what will happen uh, in the future? Will there be further reductions of the $80 billion? Will there be uh, an increase or a decrease in the annual appropriations to the Internal Revenue Service? These are important questions. You can't, it's simply not possible to introduce the kind of changes we need, for example, in the information, informa uh, the, the IRS information systems. Look, folks, I had problem, every former commissioner, other than perhaps Mort Kaplan, back uh, with John Kennedy, all of us have had problems with the information systems at the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, you, can't, you, you can't upgrade the information systems at IRS on an appropriations basis because that's a one-year basis and you need multiple years in order to do that. Will the Congress permit that? Will the Congress permit the IRS to have sufficient resources to be, be able to answer the telephones for calls from taxpayers that are trying to comply with their tax obligations and they need help? I don't know the answer to that. I thought that last year we finally had a bipartisan answer to that with the $80 billion increase. But I don't know whether that will continue to be the case or not. Okay, well, you just brought up uh, you know, something important, which is the customer service aspect including who's picking up the phones and a lot of other aspects about that. You've studied the plan. What do you expect the IRS will be able to achieve in improving customer service with this money? We've seen one example already in the current filing season. We've seen what happens when you can hire additional seasonal employees that can be trained and deployed on the telephone. Understand something. The IRS has one of the largest call centers in the world, not just in the United States, but in the world. During the filing season, the tax, the, the call volume of incoming calls to the Internal Revenue Service goes up dramatically. And the IRS has to hire seasoned employees to do that. If you don't have sufficient employees on the telephone, then we will have the repeat of people that wait and wait and wait, and then finally are either cut off or they give up. Now you say, Larry, is this, is, are you really sure it's that bad? Yes, I'm really sure that that's bad. It's that bad. Two years ago, 82% of the callers to the Internal Revenue Service were unable to find someone at the IRS to answer 
their calls, 82%. I mean, how would, how would you deal with your bank? How would you deal with a private sector organization if you were trying to call them and only 18% of the calls could get through? This is a serious problem. These are people that are trying to comply with their tax obligations. These are the folks you ought to be talking to. Back when I was commissioner and in the 1970s, we actually had not only call sites for people to call in, they could walk in to the IRS offices and get help from a person in taxpayer service on their returns and the questions they had while they were preparing their returns. That, that is a type of customer service that waxes and wanes today. It's not something you can depend upon. And unless we can get, the IRS can get adequate funding, uh, you simply are not going to be able to handle the customer workload. And these are customers of the Internal Revenue Service. These are people that are trying to comply. Not going to be able to meet the demand. All right, and I know you referenced this earlier, uh, talking about technology and the constant efforts to keep up in the IRS with with uh, the uh, infrastructure that it needs uh, to perform its mission. Uh, what role do you think technology will play in implementing the plan, and how do you think that's going to work out? I know this is a particular interest to you, so uh, um, what are your it, thoughts it is, on that? It is, Rob. It, uh, look, the, in today's world, particularly as artificial intelligence begins to rise in terms of its use, its popularity, the criticisms of it, and so forth. Technology is going to be the name of the game. It just is. It is, a, it is incredibly important. Now, let me say something. Let me, let me, I, I'd like to, to use a personal experience. 1986, when I became commissioner, I had a good friend from Dallas, Texas. His name was Ross Perot. Ross Perot was a presidential candidate at one point. He uh, was a majority shareholder and ran uh, electronic data systems. Ross walked in one day unannounced. I was glad to see him. He wanted to talk to me about the IRS information system. He said, Larry, are you aware that the IRS in the 1980s has an ice age computer system, information system. I said, what are you talking about? He said, at the Internal Revenue Service, you are the largest organization in the world that still codes its information systems in basic computer code. He said, the problem is you can't find people. You have to train them because nobody else in the world uses that old a code. Well, guess what? Prior to the passage of the legislation last year, increasing by $80 billion, the IRS since 1986 had progressed from basic computer code to COBOL. And the answer is nobody, nobody today trains anyone in COBOL. Um, why is that important? Well, I can give you one benefit. The systems are so old and so outdated that 
in a way they may the IRS may benefit from a security standpoint because nobody knows enough about the system the IRS uses to be able to hack into it. But otherwise, the IRS is using information systems that rely on master files that have to be updated. And if the files are not properly and timely updated, then everything shuts down at the Internal Revenue Service. You say, Larry, come on, everything shuts down? Well, let me give you an example. The year before I became commissioner, the IRS redesigned its hardware and software for its information systems, and they didn't work. And when they didn't work, the IRS could not pay eight, more than 80 million taxpayers their refunds that averaged $2,000 a refund at that time. These are people that have paid in the money and they couldn't get the money back because the systems were not working. But more than that, the IRS could not begin any audits and they couldn't begin any collection matters until the master files were updated. And as I came in, what I was told was, hey, Commissioner, when you can't pay 80 million reruns and you can't begin to audit and you can't begin to collect, you're out of business. So, no, I don't think it's an overstatement. I think it's something that is truly serious that needs to be done. And that, I'm hopeful, with congressional and public support, we can provide that assistance again with the plan that the IRS is developing. Now, turning to enforcement, I know that there are very detailed objectives and recommendations in the plan about enforcement. Do you think there will actually be meaningful changes in how the IRS pursues uh, taxpayers and audits and otherwise? Yes, I do. I think, I honestly believe that uh, the public and their elected representatives are going to demand it. I also believe it's something the Internal Revenue Service itself wants to do. Let me explain what I'm talking about. If you're working for the IRS, you're not looking for love. If you're looking for love, you're at the wrong place. If you do a good job, you may earn taxpayers' respect. If you do a great job every so often, you may even get trust under certain circumstances. Nobody likes to pay additional taxes. Nobody. But it is the price we pay for our civilized society in the United States. And as I've said before, given our fiscal condition that we have at the present time with our debt in excess of GDP, it is something that we need to work and work well. It makes a difference. If the taxpayer believes that everyone is paying his share or her or its share, fair share of the tax burden, then the system works. And the only way to do that is for the IRS to be active in its compliance and enforcement efforts. Unfortunately, there are people 
attempt to game the system to the point that you have a criminal investigation division and you have people who have committed crimes by not paying their fair share. But much more important than that, to be t honest with you, the American taxpayers, by and large, over the years, and as I said, I look at it from the standpoint of practicing for 50 years and watching the IRS for 40 years. In most instances, the overwhelming majority of taxpayers do pay their fair share. And in light of that, I really think, and I think there's a discussion going on within the IRS today, that the IRS should endeavor to call balls and strikes, but not be seen as someone that is extracting dollars in an unfair manner. And I believe that with the additional funding and the additional training in the enforcement and in the compliance areas, in audits, that the, the IRS can train their folks, can deploy their folks, can manage their folks to come across as being seen as folks that are simply doing a job to try to ensure that everyone pays their fair share but not in a manner where it seems that the IRS is attempting to extract unfairly an additional dollar that the IRS field is owed. I think that will be, that kind of a change could make a major difference. And I think it is a, the type of change that is being discussed today. One of the themes when you look at the enforcement recommendations in the plan is this idea of centralized planning for both audit, uh, the conduct of audits, and for the selection of enforcement priorities. What are your views on that kind of centralization? It is a novel idea. One of the things that IRS is accused of from time to time, there's a certain amount of truth in it, is that the IRS is siloed. That is to say that various segments of its compliance and enforcement, whether you're talking about audits, whether you're talking about um, collection matters, whatever you're talking about that involves compliance enforcement, that there's not a, an ability to share resources, to move the resources where the work is, that type of thing. I think, uh, I after thinking about it long and hard, I believe that the idea of centralizing and coordinating enforcement uh, capabilities uh, will result in greater flexibility from the standpoint of training personnel, from the standpoint of deploying personnel, that plus other things that we'll discuss in a minute, uh, I think will result in a more efficient utilization of the resources that the IRS has to perform its audit and uh, its collection activities. Now, another aspect of the plan's enforcement objectives is the use of data analytics. In fact, if you actually read the plan, you know, the word analytics comes up 149 times, uh, basically once in every page, if you look at it like that. Do you find that emphasis on data analytics significant in the enforcement space? I sure do. Uh, let me mention why. Um, shortly after I became commissioner in 1986, 
one of my deputy commissioners, I had a principal deputy commissioner, and then I had several others that were uh, designated uh, deputy commissioners in charge of certain areas. One of them, a man by the name of John Weddick, came to me and said, Commissioner, I'd like to ask you to consider something. I'd like to ask you to giving me to allocate to me some funding for staff and for some research work that I think the IRS could benefit from. There's something that uh, we've been studying. We'd like to devote additional resources to it. It's called artificial intelligence. This is 1986. That was the first that I at least know that the IRS was beginning to take a look at the use of artificial intelligence. And that has led to, uh, over the years since 1986, the development of data capability. The way this works uh, that I'm familiar with, and there's been a lot written recently about it, is that it tends to work best if you can assemble a large amount of data that is reliable and then begin to use that data in a predictive way. The IRS is extraordinarily good at assembling and using data. They do it all the time across the organization. And what we're talking about is that instead of kind of making educated guesses about how can we spend our compliance resources, how can we spend, expend our audit resources, who should the IRS be auditing? And the IRS for years has attempted to come up with ways to allocate precious resources in the audit area to those most likely not to be in compliance with their tax obligations. Not a question of whether they intend to do or not. The question is, however much they've paid, is it likely if we audit the returns, we will find some additional amounts? The IRS is very good if, if, you're, if you're in an area where you've got uh, dividends, interests, uh, items where the payor is sending the IRS information that it can match to the taxpayer's turn, hey, the compliance is really much better than in areas where there is no such data. What this is about, what data analytics at the IRS is about, is to say, all right, can we take it one step further? Can we begin to rely on data analytics to develop programs to better predict who we should be auditing? Makes an awful lot of sense. Why should you be audited? If you're not likely to owe any more money, it's not good for you and it's certainly not good for the organization to expend resources and come up with nothing or very little. Why wouldn't it be better to use the amounts of data and begin to ask through an analytical effort, help us begin to predict who should we be auditing and how should we be developing that information? Now, before you say, hey, wait, wait a minute, Larry, I've read, about, I've read about this. You really got to be careful here. 
Understand that, but also understand that the IRS has been working in this area since 1986. I agree totally. It's not something you want to start off with in terms of using untested, unverified approaches. But I do believe that with the background and with the skills and capabilities that IRS has all already dealt with, that the future offers the opportunity for a more efficient allocation of IRS audit resources to get the most bang for the buck, particularly among the wealthy. Now, when the, uh, the plan first came out, and uh, it is extensive and has detailed objectives, even with uh, benchmarks for, uh, for when things will be implemented, I personally was very impressed with the amount of detail that was in there. But there has been some criticism that it hasn't gone far enough in disclosing what uh, the IRS's plans are and how they intend to achieve it. Uh, do you think there was enough transparency in the plan? Is there more information that the IRS should be releasing at this point about what their plans are? I have kind of a reaction to that. I think it's certainly understandable for the politicians to basically say, hey, look, $80 billion is an awful lot of money. How are you going to spend it? Tell us up front, how are you going to spend it? I think it's understandable. I think the first cut was a good one. The politicians have asked for more detail, and more detail is being provided. But I will say this. Things are not going to remain static. I would expect the plan over a period of time to make changes as changes appear appropriate from what is being done at the Internal Revenue Service in implementing the entire plan. And I would simply say that I believe from past experience in watching my predecessors and my successors, I believe the IRS will see to it that as changes are made, course corrections are made, that information is going to be made available to the politicians and to the public. It's frankly only common sense. Because if that information is not made available, the IRS is under is taking a big risk, and that is not something I believe that the IRS will do. So, yes, I do believe there will be greater transparency, and it will relate directly to what is the plan, what, how is it changing, if it does change, and making that information available as soon as possible. Earlier you talked about one of the big concerns is what will happen with the funding? Will it be further reduced? Will there be reductions in the annual appropriations to the IRS? But even beyond the funding, even if the funding remains uh, the same or increases, there are still considerable challenges uh, involved in implementing the plan. And based on your perspective as a former commissioner, what do you think the greatest challenges that the IRS face in implementing the plan, even if funding remains intact? You've made an assumption. I understand the assumption, uh, but I will tell you, I, I can't pass it by. Um, I think the greatest uh, risk that the IRS and our country has is that the uh, funding will not be sustained, or even if sustained will be so reduced that in not that many years, we could be back to where we all are today. You say, Larry, what do you mean back to where we are today? Well, let me just mention, give you one example. Last August, 
when the act was passed and the $80 billion was put into law, the IRS had the same number of auditors, the same number of people examining returns last August as they had during World War II. Think about that for a second. The same number of auditors as they had in World War II in the 1940s. That's a fact. That's a statistical fact. We can't go back to that. That's, that is providing too much risk to the system, and the system is too important. Now, apart from that, um, I believe that the IRS will have to uh, continually update and test the plan that it has and deal with whatever the exigencies that are that arise from a political standpoint, from a fiscal standpoint. I believe it is the uncertainty that we face as a country that the IRS will have to deal with how whatever the, however that sorts out for the IRS and for the plan. That's where I believe the greatest risks are for the Internal Revenue Service. I believe that the IRS can implement a plan. I believe that there can be greater certainty about the, how the IRS will operate. I believe that with adequate lead times, the information systems can be updated. I believe that the customer service can be improved. And by the way, when I say customer service, I use that phrase in my very first interview on Good Morning America. And Barbara Walters asked me, Commissioner, you're talking about taxpayers as customers. Is the customer always right? And I said, Ms. Walters, if the customer is attempting to comply with her or his or its tax obligations, yes, the customer is always right. And for those that don't try to comply with their obligations, then in fairness of the overwhelming majority than do, they're not going to be treated the same way. And they shouldn't be. Now, you've studied the plan carefully. Is there anything missing? Is there anything that you think should have been added that's not there? No, I don't. Uh, I don't see it at this point. Maybe it will become apparent. Uh, I think there is more of a, a, a focus at the Internal Revenue Service uh, on trying to use what has been given uh, rather than looking for uh, a new, new things that is, are needed. I don't think that would be wise politically, and I don't think that's being done, and I don't think it's necessary at the present time. Okay. So if you were the commissioner today, and you had the plan you know, presented to you the way it was uh, you know, presented to uh, Commissioner Werfel. What would be your top priorities for this additional funding? The top priorities I would see, particularly as a commissioner, would be to build better bridges through dialogue with the Congress and with the public, continually attempting to exceed expectations, laying out 
what you're going to do, what the agency is going to do, being honest with the public. If there's a mistake made, if there's a failure to achieve an objective, what is it? And how are you going to correct it? And how are you going to prevent it from happening again? But be honest with our elected representatives and with the public. And I think Danny Werfel is a perfect kind of person to do that. Anyone who has seen Commissioner Werfel in terms of the question and answers he gave during the, the confirmation process and the way he's dealt with the elected representatives and with the public, I think that will happen under his watch, and I think it is extremely important. So, as you know, in the recent you know, debt ceiling legislation, a key you know, part of that compromise was a $20 billion cut in IRS funding. What is the impact you think that that will have on the plan? And is there any way that the uh, service can mitigate those effects? There's been a lot of discussion about it. What the administration has said is, hey, these changes, those significant, um, are not going to affect the rollout of the plan in the foreseeable future. There have been expressions of, well, maybe we can uh, find a way uh, with the uh, appro annual appropriations system that we have in this country. Maybe we can uh, find a way to restore some of that money if we can show that we're doing what we said we're going, the IRS is doing what it said it, would going to do, it, it was going to do in the, uh, in the plan so far. I'm not particularly worried uh, about that. What I am worried about is the possibility that for whatever reason, you'll have politicians in Congress, perhaps in both parties, that just decide there's a bright, shiny object other than the Internal Revenue Service. They want to take money away, continue to take it away, continue to claw it back, and pay it someplace else. That, that I think, would be playing with fire, not just for the IRS, but for our fiscal situation and for the country. That, that would be my greatest concern that will come out of the what was done during the debt uh, increase. Uh, I do think that ultimately it may be necessary, as much as the IRS would like to avoid it, as much as the country would have to, to go back and once again understand what the Treasury Inspector General said back at the Lois Lerner time. Again, what was said, the Republicans have said, oh, oh, no, oh, no, the IRS discriminated against the Republicans. I question whether there's any credible evidence of that. I will be perfectly happy to admit that there were mistakes that were made, there were actions that were taken, but whether there was actually discrimination between the two parties. We may have to deal with that again in some fashion. I hope not. But I don't think we can continue to play fast and loose as we had over the last 13 years with our tax system. You can't increase the workload and decrease the resources the way Congress has done it. 
and that's been report Republicans and Democrats. Somehow, some way, we've got to come to an understanding to prevent this from happening in the future. How will we know if the plan has been a success when we're looking back 10 years from now and evaluating how the service did and you know, what in the plan was fulfilled and what wasn't? How will we know that this was a success? Through an old IRS technique that was applied, remember when uh, you were introducing me, you mentioned that I came in in 1986 and that was the last time we reformed our entire tax law, the Internal Revenue Code of 1986. And the question was, how was the IRS going to measure up in implementing carrying out that new law. We had to face that while I was there. And what the IRS did was this, Rob. They basically sat down and said, okay, let's get some folks outside the IRS and let's put together a plan. And the plan is going to be, how can we measure success? At the end of the road, how will we know whether we've been successful or not? And that's exactly what they did. And the IRS developed a plan and the metrics to measure success. And they explained, here are the metrics that we're going to use. We've had outside folks look at this. If you want to add to it, fine. Give us what, you're, what you'd like to suggest. But this is what we're going to measure. And we're going to measure it for better or worse. Whether we achieve it or not, we're going to tell you as we go along and at the end, did we, did we achieve it? In other words, what I'm suggesting is the IRS, because if you don't do that, then other people after the fact will set the, the metrics. They'll set what was and was not success. But the point is you need to do that at the front end and get buy-in from all the constituencies, all the stakeholders to say, yes, this is the, if we measure it this way, this will be fair. And then what you've done is establish your own metrics. You've established, here's how we're going to measure it. And then what you have to do is deliver. You have to make it happen. The IRS is pretty good at that. And I think if you'll do it that way, at the end of the road, you'll have a report card that people will have bought into about how to measure success or failure. All right, and if you have any concluding thoughts, anything that uh, we haven't talked about that you think is important to discuss about the plan, uh, this, is, uh, this would be a great opportunity for you to share your thoughts with uh, the tax world based on your experience. I'd like everyone to know that the questions were developed by Rob and I think they're outstanding. They're the best I have seen in terms of the questions that people ought to be asking about the plan to fund the Internal Revenue Service to pull it back from the brink of failure and set our tax system on a new course to achieve the objectives of the legislation and to do so as efficiently and effectively as the IRS can do it. And Rob, I'd like to thank you for it. It was 
it was really enjoyable for me to do this with you today. Well, Larry, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, to share your experience. Uh, you really have a unique perspective on this, and I hope and believe that people will pay attention to uh, what you've said today and what you've said uh, in the press and elsewhere on this really vital topic for tax administration. Thanks, Ron. Thank you very much. Uh, that concludes this episode. Thank you for watching Tax Break. Produced by HeartCast Media.